Dr. Koontz, my opening question this week is not really connected to the bizarre, I kind of think it's platonic reality of denominationalism, but maybe it is a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and it is, I think, very timely connected to things that are going on, say, uh, in Lutheranism writ large. At least the Missouri Senate would like to think that a symposia series at one of our flagship, at our flagship seminary, would be, you know, writ large across the, the impact on the Lutheran world and the Christian world. I'm not so sure that it's as large as we'd like to think, but nonetheless, I mean, a big splash from Concordia and St. Louis recently. And I, the only thing I really want to pull out of it is the only thing that got loud enough to get my way, mm-hmm. which was more or less that, you know, pacifism is in fact the Christian position always. And that this is something that to to teach or believe otherwise is to kind of throw your hat in the ring with some real, you know, radically violent individuals on, let's say, the terrorist watch list spectrum of, you know, society. You know, that, that you're suspect as a Christian if you are not taking the pacifist position. And again, this is sort of the assertion spiritually. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. I'm not going to footnote any papers. We're talking about you know, pacifism as yes, you must, you're a Christian. And, and you and I have talked about this before. We've gone through Romans 13 before our listeners, if they've been around, they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. I do believe this is a very pertinent argument to our times that the right of self-defense as a Christian neighbor defending the neighborhood is very much not what you shall not kill is about stopping, right? It's not, it's not there to stop you from saving your neighbor's life from barbarians that are attacking you is there to stop you from killing your neighbor and and to find that line uh, again I, I leave the floor to you i think conceiving of what a christian should do solely in terms of what is good for his neighbor is always going to wind up with extremely limited and in circumstances like the ones that we're facing today wrong conclusions because the entire discourse of rights which i find many lutherans object to partly because it's not in our usual theological vocabulary, no shock there. And when rights are taken up by people who are or are supposed to be Lutherans, like Samuel Pufendorf, I know it sounds like a silly last name, but he's kind of an important figure in this discussion historically, they're not terribly good Lutherans. So the entire realm of ethics, which also relies on perceptions of the orders of creation, is at best not discussed. And when discussed is discussed, I think, for this reason, ineptly, because it doesn't recognize that the discussion of rights, such as a right to self-defense or the right to not have your child's body invaded by societal, medical, or educational authorities. Can I just say right to life? I mean, really? Yeah, right to life. That entire, all the talk of rights okay, whatever has been done with it that you don't like about modern America or something, or you want to conceive of modern America as selfish and, you know, horror of horrors, individualistic, whatever that individualism is about as poorly defined as nationalism is, by the way. So I, I tend to really need some better definition when somebody uses those words. But if you're going to say that there's a problem there, then you have to realize that the discussion of natural right, as especially developed in Anglo-American philosophy, is predicated on the perception of natural law. The reason that there are natural rights to, for instance, the integrity of one's own body is because you perceive that it is your body as given by God and therefore not someone else's to 
tamper with as he sees fit, right? Whether he's a medical or military or other wise, you know, manner of authority. So the discussion of rights, as you want to take them up in the Anglo-American political tradition, which involves common law, involves our own history of the perception of nature. It's all predicated on the concept of nature, not the concept of proximity. Proximity as in, or, or literally vicinity, if you want to use a Latin root connected to neighbors, that is, that, that's, that's way downstream from the perception of natural right. So you can debate what are natural rights because you could debate is the reception of healthcare in a you know technologically advanced society a natural right so is healthcare a a human right okay you can you can debate that right it's not like this is just a these are all entirely hard and fast assertions but the right to self defense is hard and fast because the existence of one's own person as given by god is hard and fast and therefore theft of your life whether you want to talk about it in terms of the fifth commandment or you could somewhat more creatively talk about it in terms of the seventh commandment is a natural right because God has made you and he has not made another to physically control you at all times. You're not made to be a prisoner in that regard, right? So when you're talking about rights, then you need to realize that our tradition particularly is extremely poorly equipped to handle the modern world because the modern world speaks English and for better or worse has dealt with Anglo-American political concepts. Now that's particularly atrocious in an American Lutheran church that we don't understand anything about being American except that we physically occupy space in America. But that's the deal and that has to be integrated. So, so that talking ethically solely about the neighbor, you're never going to be able to come up with an explanation for why someone is not allowed to just walk up to my car while I'm sitting in traffic and shoot me in the head and take my car. I mean, that's just going to be phrased as theft or like, it's bad for the thief, but we're not talking about the thief. We're talking about why I'm going to resist the thief. <laughs> okay. We're, you know, so why even in a state like Colorado or Illinois, are you actually able to stand your ground if he's going to open your car door and shoot you in the head? Not to speak of the places more aligned with Anglo-American common law, where stand your ground means quite a bit more than that. Why is that? Well, that's because of the perception and the protection of natural right by express law. But the right was there before the express law was there. And if you if you don't concede that or you don't accept that or you're still thinking in terms of everything I do has to be peaceful unless some other person's body or something is under threat, then of course you have no explanation for why anyone may defend himself or his own. And we're getting at here is the value of of the person uh, in in God's sight created, right? This is before redeemed. And in one way, I think that much of what Christianity has to offer the world in our redemption is the redemption of this idea that the person is of value, that even an evil man, God looks at him and he sees a man. And he loves that he made the man, even though he certainly uh, will bring about his vindication on all, all evil. So the idea of, of the rights in one sense is similar to, I think, it's like an inverted version of, I'm talking about self-esteem, frankly. It, why do we live in a culture where there's a market to try to give you tricks for justifying yourself with a, you know self-esteem, with belief that you're actually worth it? 
uh, with belief that you're a person. And it has a lot to do with a culture of death that doesn't acknowledge personhood in really anybody. You you kind of get to act for your own flesh sometimes. But at the end of the day, if we tell you to put this in your body, again, most of us are just going to roll with it, right? Or or so it seemed recently that we did. Out of all of that, Dr. Coons, I, I really, I like this idea here. It, it, the word worldly has some baggage in Christian circles. And, uh, you know, it, it means in some senses to be godless. And I consider that a, a good use of the word and one we might want to reconsider and use more often. That said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So not everything about the world is is godless or evil, but God is still very much here. And uh, last week's episode, you know, had tips to form the Concord One, and a major point of that uh, confession is that, that in spite of sin, right, God still is the creator and author author of of this age, this age of man, this time, this space, whatever framework you want to use to describe it. I like the world though because it captures both heaven and earth, and in this way, to believe that there is a worldly rightness that is right and to be pursued before and after I'm saved by grace through faith through vicarious sacrifice on a blood atonement reality on a cross 2,000 years ago. That happened. That's real. And in and around that, there is a worldly rightness. And and now that I don't have to try to become worldly right in order to avoid death or salve my conscience or anything like that, I can just see that there is a worldly rightness and it involves not stealing and not murdering. And, and I know that because I have my body my person, my stuff that I'd love to share. Stop taking it, right? Like that that frame, that that uh, lens, I think is just so important to hover around and, and focus on because it is, again, it's about personhood. And that brings it back to right to life. If we're going to be a right to life church, then, th- then we got to care about every person, not just the unborn. But I mean, it it is an index of how, how messed up we are in our perceptions about daily life that you have to say what you just said. Amen. Right. That that somehow we need to apologize for observations about nature that would have been blindingly clear to previous generations. Yep. And and give some explanation for why we're not sitting here in like a waiting room until we die. Because when you talk about Christian pacifism, something you'll notice and I could make biographical observations about people like John Howard Yoder or Leo Tolstoy, that there's always a combination of enormous arrogance and enormous obliviousness in the man who advocates such things. And in Yoder, that was that was expressed by basically, you know, making sure that women's ordination could happen in the Mennonite Church USA so that he could sleep with the people who would come to seminary to be women pastors. You know, isn't it funny how that just happens that way? Well, yeah, just, right. You know, right, exactly. together. Right. Like, and, and, I, ding dong and, stuff. and if he were a parish pastor, just like with Carl Bart and his secretary, that would be taken seriously as a point of critique. But somehow, if he's a professional theologian, it doesn't matter, which is nuts. But that's the way that the world works right now. But the idea that somehow you're not allowed to make simple observations from nature and then inculcate those in terms of what you do with your life or for your family or in building a community, the fact that you have to you have to explain, Pastor Fisk, why it's okay to talk about other things besides the gospel narrowly defined, right? In, yeah, right, in the way the confessions right. would say it. That, that's an index of how messed up we are. 
because the difficulty here is that the gospel narrowly defined is not the thing that's under assault when my kid gets sent to public school. It's or private school. It's not the thing that's under assault when I don't get that job because, you know, as we learned recently, the Fortune 500 companies since 2020 are hiring roughly 94% non-whites and 6% of jobs are going to whites. That's obviously wildly disproportionate, right? But those aren't about the gospel narrowly defined. We're not saying that's unjust, right? Or has nothing to do with someone's qualifications or whether my child is allowed to maintain the integrity of his, you know, body while he's, you know, 11 years old. That has nothing to do with the gospel narrowly defined. But we're like not allowed to talk about it or even notice that it's occurring. And the reason is that the blindness that Satan has sent on the modern church is a blindness concerning creation largely. That's obviously connected to redemption because the way that we articulate the gospel is going to be related to what we're able to say is the problem. And you'll notice that Lutherans, modern Lutherans, have no problem still articulating the gospel in psychological terms because those are permitted to everybody still, right? Yeah. Not only can you get mental health counseling, but you can talk about guilt. Not only can you, you know, do telehealth appointments with your counselor, you can talk about shame. I'm not saying that we mean the same things when we're preaching by guilt and shame that that counselor might mean, but I'm saying the reason that we still have the vocabulary is because other people permit us to have the vocabulary. And when other people don't permit us to have the vocabulary for self-defense, we not only adopt whatever categories are available to us, but we also most often, and especially our people who are not attuned to issues of self-defense or discussion of gun rights in the United States or whatever, they're probably going to dismiss them because those are the acceptable categories given to them. Dismiss the problem or act like it's not a problem or like the Christian solution would never be to defend yourself. What all of that is, is what the reformers are actually critiquing in their version of this, the Anabaptists in their time, which is that you are, you are attempting to exit the world. It's a, it's a monastic kind of flight and it's actually easiest because a lot of things get replicated in modern day Anabaptism that exist in Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox monasticism down to if you live, for instance, in a place with a lot of Anabaptists, you're going to learn the difference between the uniforms and what those mean, right? Why does this Amishman drive that, that color buggy? Why does this Mennonite wear the, that length of like strings on her bonnet that these all have meanings, right? Just like, you know, what's a white friar and a black friar in the Roman Catholic tradition. The reason being, these are all monastic exercises and they matter within the in-group, but there is an incessant irrelevance about them for anyone else. And Christians are going to do that over and over again when they're trying to get out of handling the issues that are in the world. So, let me give you an example of that, right? Is that you continually get this discussion in Acts of that a judgment is coming. And there's preaching to Felix about self-control. So you do run the risk of looking stupid to people who don't believe in an ultimate judgment, because many Athenians probably don't. Or you run the risk of sounding weird to somebody who is used to thinking about self-control maybe in stoic terms, but not in terms of the fruit of a Holy Spirit you would receive, which is where, where Paul's going to go with that, right? Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
you're always going to risk sounding stupid when you're actually doing your job as a Christian. When you're not doing your job, you can remain in various Christian safe spaces. However, those have been demarcated by the predominant society. So I think that we're looking at a future where we're going to have these options and we're going to have, and a lot of things about, you know, being trad are essentially monastic. They are adoption of aesthetics and ways of talking and ways of asserting yourself. And Lutherans have their own version of this. It's usually called repristination because the issue here is that what you do is you safely depart into some part of the past that you are allowed to occupy in the, in whatever manner you're allowed to occupy it. So no, you don't agree with Francis Pieper on women voting, you know, <laughs> in this, in the civil realm, but you, you can ape Francis Pieper, you can dress like Francis Pieper, right? So you get to have that and then you stay out of the way of everything else. Anabaptism is a certain Protestant form of a much older impulse in that way. And it's a captivity impulse. It's it's what a lot of Orthodox people did under Ottoman rule. You, I mean, is it necessarily you, wrong or is it only wrong because it claims it's the only way? It is wrong because it involves sheer disobedience to the mandate of Christ. Because what, what you're going to do, if you're going to say, for example, like in the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of Lutherans, I think, think insufficiently about themselves as an ethnic phenomenon in the United Amen. States. And I, I don't mean racial, I mean ethnic, like you're a subgroup, you came at a certain time, that's why you behave this way, is that the Greeks, therefore, in the Ottoman Empire are going to cede not only the territory that they lost by the destruction of the little you know, rump state that we were still calling the Byzantine Empire in the 15th century. So when Constantinople falls, the game, is, the game has been over for a long time. I mean, and everybody recognizes that. The fall of the city is significant, but Everything was over before then. But what happens is, okay, now within this Ottoman state, and this is this is clear because when you're going to talk about nationalism or blasphemy laws or anything else that involves a discussion around Christian nationalism, you need to recognize we have blasphemy laws. There are lots of words you can't say and survive with a paying job for the rest of your life. Eat, right? That's just the way it works. We have blasphemy laws. I got to something every year for the state of Illinois to make sure I don't say certain things. Like there's little <laughs> phrases. So, yeah. Little right. Phrases. I mean, we, we have, we have all the ideological components of a, of a theocracy. It's just, it's just not devoted to the Christian God. That's all. Okay. So if you want to think about this, there are plenty of parallels for this, but the Ottoman empire is helpful because it has an explicit religious philosophy that it's promulgating and they let the Christians exist inside of that, but they're going to exist as what's called in Turkish, a millet, meaning you are a religious subgroup and you will be governed as such. And on your own terms, you will be left alone. So you'll figure out how to contract marriages. You'll figure out how to settle a variety of disputes. You're not allowed to build buildings in a certain way. You're not allowed to be publicly prominent. You are not allowed to convert Muslims. Some of those things happen, but what that means is in, in order to keep existing with, with an attachment to the past, and one of my favorite guys, and I've mentioned him before on this because I think that he dealt with some of the same things that Lutherans deal with and Roman Catholics do too in the U.S. is Alexander Schmemann talking about and say, saying something a lot like Seraphim Rose said. He was a convert, so I'm picking a, a lifelong Orthodox guy to say this. 
is that he says in his diaries, which are his best writing by far, in my opinion, my totally uninformed opinion, he says people people are fine with things as long as it's covered with beards and crosses and icons. Mm. Because it's an aesthetic impulse. It's it's not a devotion to truth necessarily. It may be religious, it may be ordained, it's not devoted to truth. And the way to discern the difference is to see what did Jesus say and is this is this being carried out in any way? And what happens when you accept your status as a millet, as a, a subgroup, and some other group is going to be totally dominant, ideologically, religiously, publicly, whatever. You're saying that Christ rules over the Greeks, or a, in a different millet, Christ rules over the Armenians, but he doesn't rule over the Turks, and he has no claim on the Bosniaks, and so on and so on and so on. And sometimes that explicitly results in conversion from Christianity to whatever the dominant religion is, when you can see that ground. So the Bosniaks are Bosnians who had a variety of different kinds of churches, but became as a group together, like the Albanians, Muslims, right? So they're like a European Muslim community. So that's its own problem, right? If you're a Christian and you say, oh, Jesus wants to make disciples of all nations, including Bosniaks and Albanians. But much more often what it results in is that the group that still gets to be Christian begins to devote itself to increasingly secondary and tertiary issues because the primary issue of the proclamation of the gospel. So this is where these creational and legal and natural problems become problems for the gospel narrowly defined, the gospel strictly speaking, is that now I... I'm really just too scared to preach the gospel, strictly speaking, to anybody who has a card from the Ottoman authorities that lists him as a Turk or lists him as a Syrian or some some other subgroup, usually in ethnicity, defined as Muslim. I can't touch that with a 10-foot pole now. So this is where you you really have to suss out, okay, what exactly is the problem. And if the problem is creational, you might say, or natural, that doesn't mean that it's not going to affect the gospel eventually. It just means that right now it's probably going to be easier to settle if I accept the parameters of a hostile civil authority. Right. Which there is a place where you have no choice but to accept the parameters of a hostile civil authority. What we're really defending, though, is the freedom to resist that, particularly before it takes over, right? To And then to see that as your right across the board, right? Whatever level of law this applies, you, you see an aggressive person in your home, uh, that you have the right to defend yourself for the sake that you are God's, uh, that God has made you, that has put you there, and he's not given anyone the right to kill you unless of course he manages to <laughs> uh which at which point you know the, the theology can run back into into arguments about how many angels are involved and all this kind of stuff but i think your point is is really more in line with that to, to go forward as the kingdom at such a time as this it will be a matter of a shared communion by means of a true fellowship a holy spirit that is Evident, not not the right answer on a test, but an evident spirit among us that understands where and when the value of aesthetics 
lives and dies is nostalgia and that understands where and when the testimony of the Christian childlike and in true faith is well, it was the action of God in the present, right? And that I think, you know, all churches, all congregations, certainly all denominations are being called to task on this very question. You know, who do you say that I am? Am I just someone who told you how long your hair could be? Is that is that the mark where Christianity rises or falls? Or maybe say it a different way, you know, when Seeky first got put in the hymnal, did you complain? Uh, Jesus' own word, his words, his very words, right? Uh, you know, what are we arguing about and why? And then what spirit is among us that makes such dissension, such vitriol, such evident politicking, right? So I, I think I'm with you. I think I'm with you. Uh, let's talk about the collapse of denominations. I mean, where did these things come from? <laughs> yeah. So for the listeners, this is the this is the outline we actually had. <laughs> Wasn't ready to talk about the Ottomans, but but maybe I always am. Denominations are if you were more if you were more well read, I think you could have handled it. Right. Better. I know. That's what, what I it, got. <laughs> I'm more or less a total idiot. <laughs> denominations are 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 predicted to collapse already about a hundred years ago. And that's connected to one of three big things we're going to pick up maybe this week, maybe it'll, it'll bleed into next week, but three big things we're going to have to pick up. And what's happening a hundred years ago is what's called the fundamentalist controversy or sometimes, and I think more better, you know, better phrased as the fundamentalist modernist conflict. Are we talking about the battle for the Bible though? I mean, is that just kind of the that's the a concept? later that's a later term? And the fundamentalist modernist conflict is better, not only because it's the source of what Harold Linsell's later going to call the battle for the Bible, uh-huh. which is primarily about Southern Baptists and Missouri Synod Lutherans, but it's also that although the doctrine of what scripture is, or you could say even more broadly, what authority the church has to say what it does. Although that's at the heart of it, it's not the scope and it's not usually how most people even recognize it's happening. Most people would recognize the fundamentalist modernist conflict as it begins and is and is being literally prosecuted in some cases, sometimes in church courts and in the in the case of the Scopes trial in a in a civil court in the 1920s, in terms of a denial of the virgin birth of Christ, or in terms of a denial of the veracity of the account of creation in Genesis. So that's related to the doctrine of scripture, but it is about more than that. And the two volumes published from from which we get the term fundamentalist, because the volumes are called the fundamentals, were about basic Christian doctrines, things that in a creedal church would be identified as summed up in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which were being denied, I think most saliently or or blatantly in terms of Christ's birth and also Christ's resurrection, whether the birth was miraculous and whether the resurrection occurred. And because that conflict is going on publicly in the most publicly prominent denominations in America, which I think I think the listeners need to be reminded are, are not even close to the Lutherans. And the Lutherans don't actually have this conflict explicitly anywhere, not in the press, even when it does begin to infiltrate in the 30s. It's happening in the Presbyterian Church in the United States, and it's happening in the Episcopal Church, among others. There are other examples, the Northern Baptists fight over these things. 
So it's broadly affecting a lot of those denominations or their predecessors that we talked about in a previous episode as the seven sisters of mainline Protestantism. Now, they're also going to be the seven sisters of liberal Protestantism, but that's because in each case, with varying amounts of time, the modernists, that is people who maybe do believe in the resurrection of Christ, but don't believe that you have to believe in the resurrection of Christ or or do believe that the Bible is God's word, but don't believe that your minister has to believe that same thing. They're much more common. A sort of laziness is a lot more common than a, than a hard-edged liberalism. They're going to win in time in all of those denominations. And that's going on 100 years ago. And what's happening is that people like Jay Gresham Machen, who's a loser in the Presbyterian conflict, and thereby becomes the father of what's now called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is going to prophesy, essentially, in the book Christianity and Liberalism, that these are two different religions. And when Christianity is run out of a church, when the doctrine of scripture is eviscerated in a church, eventually that church will no longer be Christian. So 100 years ago, they're not quite thinking, generally, that there simply won't even be enough baptisms to sustain any given denomination. They're saying that if the denomination succumbs in the fundamentalist modernist conflict to modernism or to liberalism or to broad churchism or a lot of terms for this to express that most people don't care and that's more of a problem than the fact that a few people care a lot and are totally wrong. If that happens, then they'll they'll still be called churches, they just won't be Christian. So that's what they imagined. So they were I think about 95% right. I don't yeah. think they foresaw the demographic collapse yeah. that we more often focus on today. Yeah. So they didn't see the churches disappearing quite the same way. There still would have been social clubs the way you got your local Italian club or whatever. And there would have been a lot more you know, of this or that people group tribe, their habits and their way of doing things and they're getting married and they're getting buried and all this would have still been going on. But But now we've got a you know, you got other streams that come in, yeah. uh, marketability, uh, the church growth, and the idea, you know, that you actually are in competition with your neighboring churches changes the game for everybody quite a bit. So, okay. Well, I'll come back to your your list. I I, I got I love the non-creedal creedalism of the fundamentalists. It's really a fascinating little hole, like the corner they painted themselves into. I do see then the battle for the Bible as an outgrowth of this idea that you're, you're pitching here, fundamentalist, modernist. And then the, yeah, the thing about the distinction as a spectrum between two things and trying to, to pin it down, not just as an event in history, but as a real question of principles. I mean, it, it is scripture, uh, but I think it's, you know, if, if I said the word of God as a Loki, then that would also apply here. But creation being the first word of God, the created order, nature. It, but it's not just that, because it's also, you know, did Jesus say it? And and does that mean that's it? And we just bow at his feet? Or are we reframing this, recontextualizing this, deconstructing, it, deconstructing this, right? And at some level, then the modernist edge seems to be more about hermeneutic, whereas the fundamentalist seems to be more about, well, just assuming that the, there is a certain hermeneutic that cannot be abandoned, right? That because it is it is the only natural way to read. And that's a I think it's a fascinating like spiritual battle right there. You know, put your finger on that. 
Do you want to respond to any of that that I said? I had something else, but you can- I th- it it is about hermeneutics, but I think that that is that itself is downstream from the issue of the capacity for recognition and discussion that we talked about earlier regarding natural law, natural right, and the future of Christianity in a given place is that once someone realizes that X professor at McCormick Seminary or Concordia Seminary St. Louis or whatever is saying something nuts about the Bible, it it's probably actually too late. Right. Because he can be deposed or you can get an there's a really interesting book from a much more confident time about denominations by a Presbyterian historian named Lefferts Letcher, who taught at Princeton, I believe the university, not the seminary. But it a lot of it is feels like Presbyterian inside baseball. So for our Presbyterian listeners, and I know we have them, and they're they're probably more likely to be OPC than anything else. I'm down with OPC. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, but it but but if you know, even if you're not Presbyterian, it's fine because what you'll notice is that it's an instit- it's largely a history of various institutional things, including committees, and that's that's where you need to press on. But the book's not that long, so you can press on. But what it's really about is Letcher says that back in the 19th century, we were fighting about what seemed to be attitudes to evangelism and our confessions, the Westminster standards in their case, and that the standards were getting in the way of evangelism. And therefore, if we were going to claim America for Christ, everybody used to agree on that, then we need to shuck off some of the standards. And that that, that was the debate within what would be the, the mainstream church in, let's say, the Northeast and the Midwest, because the Southern church is split off at the Civil War and doesn't come back until the 20th century together with everybody else. So let's figure that out. So he's sourcing this conflict in an older conflict about how we're going to extend the gospel to everybody so so that you can see how and why very often somebody may be in his own biography, but certainly in his genealogy. So his dad was anti-confessional or whatever, right? Why is he a liberal? Or his his grandpa was a pietist. Why is he a modernist? Why does that happen so often? Well, it happens that often because what you really have is a disagreement within the church about what it is that we need to be telling people. And that the the guy who in a previous generation was trying to accommodate himself in one way will now in a different generation accommodate himself in a different way so that you can see within the same denomination, you're going to move from some sort of liberal desire to extend the kingdom of God defined already in the 19th century as composed almost solely of of good works and and relatively little of preaching the gospel. But that's going to degenerate into modernism, which might be expressed as, I don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, or it might be expressed as a sort of Karl Barth style separation of all religious vocabulary from all of the rest of life, and you keep the vocabulary and you lose everything else. And now, a couple generations later, the literal descendants of those people are no longer in a church. Or if they are in a church, and this is why this is the collapse of denominations becomes part of the source of non-denominational growth. If they're still in a church, probably the only kind of church that isn't subject to this conflict that comes out on the other side unscathed and generally larger are what we now call 
non-denominational churches. Because in terms of 1920s conflicts or even earlier conflicts, non-denominational churches are, f- are entirely fundamentalist. That itself, in our time, in the 2020s, that's shifting, that's changing. They're going through all the same stupid conflicts. I mean, mm-hmm. it's now called deconstruction on TikTok, was just called modernism 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it has different foci, so it's more about race, or it's more about gender, or it's more about whatever. But the moves are all the same, and the moves vis-a-vis the Bible are all the same. So we know how this is going to end. But a hundred years, church, the emergent church was doing this. Yeah, you know, right. In, exactly. In utero a while ago, right. too. So. Right. Yeah. So, but the, the the issue here is that that all of that is going to be sourced out of a certain understanding of what the church is here to do. And if the church is not here to take an infallible authority and to confess what that infallible infallible authority says, and that that's kind of the basic definition of the faith, honestly, whoever you substitute for that authority for anything that you would recognize as confessional Christianity, whether you're Presbyterian or Roman Catholic or Lutheran or something else, is that you take what your infallible authority says for a Protestant Christian, that's going to be the Bible. And you confess either explicitly, if you're a quote, confessional Protestant, like a Presbyterian or a Lutheran, or implicitly. So you're going to have to write the fundamentals because you're a Methodist and there's not a lot in the books, but you're taking an infallible authority and saying what the infallible authority says. That's it. So all of that is in the terms of this conflict going to be categorized as fundamentalist. That's, and this is just an aside, but that's the reason that if you're a Missouri Senate Lutheran, you're a fundamentalist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you don't like denim skirts or you do like denim skirts, you're a fundamentalist because in theological terms, you have a, a fundament, a foundation, something at that you just basically cannot change and yeah. must say. Yeah. Um, and a modernist doesn't because a modernist in religious terms or theological terms is somebody with no particular authority source. Right. They must change. They must follow yeah, the flow. They have to. Right. Yeah. I, I, formula of Concord introduction doesn't get enough play in our circles uh, as the the standard of faith, the norm, the norms. And uh, the, pointing out what I think is epicentral to the Reformation in which I have in recent years tuned all my Reformation teaching toward scripture alone being kind of the seed where it begins. Certainly the three solas are not alone. That's kind of the point, right? So if you're only talking about faith, you're doing everyone an injustice. And if you're only talking about the Bible, you're doing everyone an injustice. And if you forget grace, you know, know, then you're, you're nothing much. That said it, where, where does it start for Luther? I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe it was his father confessor, right? Maybe, um, but no, it was the discovery of the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, what is the story of Josiah about, right? Um, what what is Reformation really? And I, for my part, I'm not going to be one of these guys who gets up there and says we apologize for the Reformation. We should never like that. That that sad little cowardly retreat is just like just quietly go into the dark night if you got to do that. But I am for saying like let's stop. Let's stop treating Reformation like it's some sort of trumpet, like like we did such a great thing, and here we are, look at us, because we haven't now for a while still, right? Like if you're a physicist and you're like, I'm a genius because Einstein, well, sorry, dude, like, no, you're you're borrowing, that's cool, but like have a little meekness then when you, when you can't break the atom anymore, <laughs> right? And, and when you don't know what's going on. So uh, to to try to bring that all back home. The infallible authority of the scripture is not a paper pope, 
as the Seminex liberals chanted, it is the beginning of the entry of the word of God into your life as an individual Christian, as a, as a person. And this began long before you or that Bible got near you. It began when these words were preached, when they were uttered, when they were written, when they've been copied and translated, all the same. Uh, it's it's in your hand now, and it is, a, it is a double-edged sword. You'll probably cut yourself with it if you pick it up, but that's just it. This is the reformation of the world. He kills and he makes alive. And, and that is by means of the text. That is by means of the word. That is where the spirit is. And, you know, I don't know, we, we keep going down the line here, but I, I still want to pull back then with that idea, you know, if the issue is about, if, if the spectrum of fundamentalist versus modernist is about scripture and one's take on the assumptions of truth when it comes to you, where it comes from, how much of that combined within our rejection of nature, natural order, creation, are tied into a, a real question about, you know, where did the Bible come from? And neglecting the, the the tremendous miracle that this document displays to anyone who will study it. If you, if you look at the last hundred years of of commentaries, by and large, the majority of them are are scoffing at the work. If you for a moment believe that God put this thing together, and, and look at it, like no one could put this thing together. This book couldn't be put together. The books inside it couldn't. Isaiah could be written. By one guy, like by himself. That's what the liberals say, and they're kind of right, except for that it was written by one guy. For it's amazing. Like forget the Odyssey, right? And and so discovering that spirit, I think Adam is is very much what must come to the churches of the Reformation, the churches which are going to protest. If we're going to protest, what are we going to protest? Let's protest what the Bible says, right? And the fact that that in our own house was able to be unearthed and destroyed like a hundred years ago as a as a domino effect, that you can say the Missouri Synod won that battle. I don't know that we did. I don't know that we did. Uh, it continues to march forward, right, uh, with, with the madness that it brings. I, I think that we won the battle for the Bible. So in, in strict terms of the fundamentalist modernist conflict, we won that. But the OPC and the Presbyterian Church in America and lots of other churches now face the same problems that we do because the disappearance of nature as a concept in the West or its irrelevance and it's being supplanted, practically speaking, in the civil realm with positivism, that is law as defined by men in an ongoing process, which is the way that in a strictly procedural manner, Marxism always occurs in a state is that the law changes radically. So what you're going to get if you have a persecution, for example, is that there will be protected classes. And that's why we use that terminology on this show. But the protected classes will change depending on the ruler, depending on political circumstance, because there is no such thing as nature. There are no natural rights. So the people whose lives deserve to exist are continually going to be shuffled and reshuffled. That is a different process from the conflict within the Christian church. And in fact, I don't, I don't, I, the reason I want to distinguish them is because I want to be accurate because in the 19th century, when scripture begins to be set aside in various ways by different theologians originating in the U.S. indigenously, let's say in New England with what becomes the Unitarian church, but most often and much more effectively imported from 
continental European, largely German scholarship into all kinds of different churches in the US. That that really is a distinct thing from the revolt against nature. And there are people who are who are even Unitarians in the er- very early 19th century who recognize that the spirit of modern man that is most destructive and in a strict sense of the in a basic sense of the word murderous that is displayed in the French Revolution, which has levels of bloodshed that will find their parallels in a lot of things, but especially in the two world wars in the 20th century. That is a different revolt than the revolt against the concept of authority. What comes together in the 20th century with such disastrous results is the merger of the hatred of authority expressed by this is a paper pope. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> the Reformation is not the supplanting of authority. It is the supplanting of merely human authority with divine authority. The problem is not authority per se. When the revolt against authority comes together with the revolt against nature, that is when true destruction begins to be wrought, both in churches, but also in nations by people who reject both all divine authority and all nature. So that's a source not just of the decline of denominations, that's a source of the destruction of everything by Satan who who despises, obviously for his own reasons, both authority and nature. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Well, we can maybe leave that for uh, another time and move more toward the Sun Belt. Although I really like to touch on the Jesus people today because SoCal and uh, Azusa, something that's been on my mind recently is that whatever I might think about all of that, there's a lot of Christians there and I got to be careful about, about, you know, how I, how I would speak in the past, I guess I just, I feel like I've been too brash and I think there's a lot of, I think there's demons there too. So I don't want to take that away, but like, it isn't, we as the reformation want to catch these people, not chase them out. I, I want to leave the Jesus people for another time because of their importance. (laughs) Okay. Because I think, because I think the second stream of non-denominational growth, which is the growth of the Sun Belt or general demographic patterns in America, is kind of simpler to explain. Yeah, sure. And has and has less to do with the actual success of these things, even in probably if you go to Maine or you go to North Dakota or something, somewhere very far from the Sun Belt, strictly speaking, you'll probably find that in the biggest places, the absolute biggest church is a non-denominational church. And if it's not, it's a Roman Catholic church with yeah. more people on the books, but to which relatively few people go. So it will be big. Right. In terms of actual <laughs> attendance, non-denom matters everywhere. Yeah. But part of the reason for its success or for especially for its growth out of the Southeast and Texas and the Southwest, leaving Texas as its own thing, right? The way the way that they like is that the American population shifts drastically over the course of the 20th century, but especially in, because of, and after the Second World War into what then comes to be called the Sun Belt. So places warmer and definitely sunnier than where the population had largely been before then, which is in the Northeast and the Midwest. And that predominance was so huge that if you still took like New York and Pennsylvania today, you have not only some of the biggest states in the union, but you'd have some really significant percentage of the American population. 
that comes to matter less, that predominance goes way down as places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and California grow. In the Sun Belt, forms of Christianity that are not denominationally approved of, or in the case of the Southern Baptist Convention, much more loosely controlled with much less of a strict relationship to something like a seminary training system than you get in Lutheranism or Presbyterianism or Episcopalianism. Those forms of Christianity that are much looser, especially what's going to be called Pentecostalism, are are native and in many cases predominant. So that part of this enormous growth in non-denominational Christianity is both how many people move to the Sun Belt over the course of the 20th and, and early 21st centuries, but also what, what is a native plant in the Sun Belt? Well, it's it's not a strict authority structure, lots of seminaries, lots of denominational officers. It is a guy and a church that he started. <laughs> That's that's native. So you have things already in Los Angeles in the 1920s that we would now call megachurches. If you want something of equal size in like a Chicago or a you know a Baltimore or something like that, you're dealing with a church that is probably actually has a denominational affiliation. It's probably called First Presbyterian Church or something like that. You know, First Church of Christ, something like that. In Amy Semple McPherson in Los Angeles in the 1920s, you already have something that is, um, it's it's completely its own thing. That that shift that shifts gradually. Pentecostals are not big business in the 1940s, not even in Oklahoma necessarily, but they will grow. And in the 1940s, still the most influential church in Southern California is Hollywood Presbyterian. There are a lot of figures, including Billy Graham, who can trace their religious development to the Sunday school there. So that's that's a pres- that's a that's a denominational legacy. Non-denom, however, is poised to take advantage of enormous population growth in the Sun Belt as Americans move there, and denominations are much more attached in all kinds of ways to the parts of America that are either not growing or are actually shrinking over time. That had happened before in American Christianity. Congregationalism was a lot more important in the early 19th century than later in the 19th century once New England, practically speaking, had emptied out. So it's not like this hasn't happened before, but it's important to know so that you can understand, okay, they didn't just grow because they were so great or they figured things out. I think they did figure certain things out. And that's where I think the Jesus people, Calvary Chapel, contemporary music, that matters more. So I want to save that for another time. But it's also that they were poised by virtue of their geographic position to take advantage of a population shift that denominations were much less well positioned to do. Yeah, This has been one of the most frustrating things to watch as the Missouri Senate tries to do church growth is the just lack of recognition that location, location, locations is in the 80, 80, 20 range of, of what matters. I think, you know, your guy has to be able to not scare people off with his smell and his attempt to repristinate the 1700s, you know, in your face all the time. But they, what they, what they figured out though, again, uh, what the, the real church growth guys did is they went where the people were and, and they just kind of opened up and found ways to get the people there. And, you know, by committee, Missouri standard practices have, have not done that so much. Uh, we've tried to try to take a lot of their other externals and you mentioned music style, um, but we try to take those things and then shove those externals into our denominational 
framework, including where we would plant, uh, how little we would spend on planting, uh, how we would fund a man when he would go. It, we try to make it all fit into that. And and we just, more or less, it doesn't work. Every once in a while you have these, we call them mega congregations. They're not, they're not mega on any national scale. Our biggest ones are not. But you know they're they're where they are. Almost in every case, you can look at the demographic growth of the area, who moved in, when a certain class of people with certain education, you know, is is just kind of looking for a church with a school, right? And, and and how often that works, and then how often then that doesn't work because you're in the wrong location. And again and again and again, churches in the wrong location trying to make the same model work, trying to be the hybrid of the church growth with the school when church growth movement doesn't really have schools for reasons. And things like that, yeah. It's it's a uh, to to reckon with demographics, not as its destiny in in the common sense people use it, but in the sense of, okay, you know, here we are as a group. We would like to imitate this other group because they've had ex- success. Can we even do that? You know, operationally, physically, as a group? Yeah, sure. You can start a band in your church. Go for it, dude. Okay, fine. Right. But what about us? Right. But that's the question we're on right now, right? Uh, denominations. What about us? What are we? Yeah, I, I, I mean, a denomination by by nature is going to take on as you know, Greek Orthodox government took on first many of the appearances in the Eastern Roman Empire. Just to go back to the Ottomans of Roman imperial government, and then later some of the characteristics of Ottoman government because of their long acquaintance with those two things. Denominations in the United States are going to take on corporation-like aspects and and perhaps consciously in many other ways ape them because that's the form for national existence with which we're familiar. When they don't do that, they might function somewhat more like a military, which is the way that very often for its own historical reasons, Roman Catholic religious orders function. Whatever your whatever your aping or whatever your structure is, you have to ask yourself: Is this actually a structure that is succeeding in the present day? So, a lot of American corporations have almost nothing to do with America except domicile status. Yeah, right. They're not they're not making things here. They're not actually dealing with people here except to sell things to them. America is more of a market than a producer. American denominations are supposed to be producers in the American market. Everything about planting a church in the United States is by necessity made in the USA in that sense. So if you're dealing with something that is designed to actually work in the United States of America, that you have on the other end of the process, a new church, or you have on the, on the other end of the process, a church that has actually survived rather than closed, whatever, the, whatever you're trying to do, then you're dealing with something that your corporation may or may not be at all set up to do at this point because it doesn't know how to, because the thing that it's aping isn't any longer doing what you're doing. Right. So part of the reason that location matters so much is that human beings are local. That's how human beings live. Even when you do remote work, you go to a certain grocery store, or if you want to hide these things more from yourself, somebody who lives locally delivers your groceries to you. It's all local. It, it has to be. That's how human beings exist. Is your corporation actually set up to deliver things locally? May, I mean, maybe they're getting, I mean, example, right? Dollar General exists everywhere in rural America at this point. It's all coming from China, but it's designed to be delivered locally. So they need to know what people in this out-of-the-way place are actually looking for, right? 
are we still aping something that isn't actually designed to be delivered locally? I'll give you a concrete example, make this a little easier for the listeners. A lot of what goes on, certainly in the world that I'm most familiar with, which is church planting, strictly speaking, but it happens more in replanting, more and more. It doesn't dominate like it does with church planting, because church planting is just by nature more pie in the sky than replanting. Replanters are probably going to be a little more grizzled and a little more down to earth than planters. Planters by their nature, blue sky, big picture, blah, 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 blah. You heard enough of it. You don't want to listen to it anymore. The thing that they're currently aping in an enormous way is Silicon Valley, because that's your example in their mind of successful culture. Okay, great, cool. So what does Silicon Valley actually do? Well, Silicon Valley, and we've done this on the show, but Silicon Valley is sourced out of enormous infusions at its beginning of government cash and technological know-how by the very class of people they're no longer hiring, <laughs> right? Solely on merit, right? It's, it's dominance by merit is incredible in early Silicon Valley. So some of that is, some of that still exists. A lot of that doesn't. Look how many people Elon could fire right away because they didn't matter. So think about whether a local church that you're trying to start actually has the same kind of stretch or can afford to take the same, to be to have so many people be as useless as Silicon Valley is today. Can I actually fire 40 of 50 pastors and everything's going to function the same way or maybe even better? Probably not. Um, because those 40, the 40, all 50 of those 50 guys are probably struggling to keep their heads above water right now. So if I'm going to ape a culture, if that's really what I need to do, and I, I, I don't actually believe that. I'm just trying to explain what's happening then I'm aping a culture that is itself largely composed of tissue paper. Lies. I mean, it was more respectable to ape Bethlehem Steel Corporation back in the day because they actually made stuff, (laughs) right? They actually had to figure out how to achieve things. These guys don't, they don't necessarily set apart the question like, is your pastor designed to be sort of like a guy that talks from a stage? you know, to go into the heart of non-denominational Christianity. So we'll do that next time. But you have to ask yourself, what what culture are they aping? What kind of vocabulary is the guy using? Not only does it sound like the faith once handed down to the saints, but also where is he getting this stuff from? Because he might be getting it. And I think a lot of parish pastors are probably aping the church that they grew up in or the professor they most admired. And that has its own limitations because they grew up however many decades ago and the professor had pastoral experience however many decades before that. That's its own problem. But even your kind of out front, I'm looking towards the future, I'm trying to solve this, either in the Missouri Senate or not, those guys are very often aping a vocabulary of an entire group of people in what is becoming America's biggest third world state. Hmm. So these are all things to ponder as we go forward. And I think we'll save you know, your most Californian stream of this whole thing, which is the Jesus people for next time, because they're the biggest component, I think, in what the culture of non-denominational Christianity becomes. We talked about sources today, but that's a source, but it's a, it's, it's a formative source in a way that the fundamentalist modernist conflict and demographics isn't. It's a stream. And, and (laughs) 
again, I, you know, I, I may have a more broad definition of Jesus people than you do. Um, you know, I'd put Bob Dylan and be like first and foremost in my mind in some ways. And he's a, you know, he didn't, didn't finish the race that he, he set out on, but the, the impact of that movement as negative as it has been in many places. And I think there are many people who can, who can raise their hand and say that Pentecostalism hurt them. Right. There is somewhere in all of this, a Holy Spirit's cry for the church to reform through trust in the grace of Christ and answers that are present today when we pray. And that's what I've learned from them in, in what it remains of that movement, which we're talking about, you know, where we are, where we were, you know, when, when, when Christian contemporary movement, while everything else in America got worse, got better when Christian contemporary music got better over the last 20 years, got more biblical, got more confessional, frankly, that, that should cause us to pause a moment again. And just take some some looking around and ask ask ourselves each individually, you know, what spirit is driving me? Is the spirit holy? And that's not to question your justification. That's not to question your election. It doesn't have to be a psychology question, right? It can simply be, who am I listening to, really? And that's your point here at the end, right? That that if I'm only listening to the leadership guru say, do this, do that, do here, then once again, I'm going to be doing like nostalgics inverted. Nostal- yeah, nostalgia inverted, right? Some guys are going to go backward for nostalgia. I'm going to go forward for dystopia, right? It's just, it's all going to be, you know, uh, steampunk by the time we get there. And so the, the pie in the sky ignorance uh, of the future really threatens the man who will listen to stories from far away with no filter such as the scriptures provides and the language of the scripture itself. So, you know, I, I don't know where our time is because you're watching the clock now, but I, I, I want to at least ask one more question of you. And that is because you said, you know, you made this case that the denominations are a form of mimicking uh, the governance of the world as a church. You're kind of following the structures that you see. And, and that case has been made before that, that I think Sasa makes that case that throughout history, we just do this. It's, it's inevitable. Yeah, you said, right. yeah. you, you said though, you know, kind of like, but I don't think you have to this way, and there's maybe a better way. So, so I want to hear what that would be right now. I mean, I want to shout, "This is the kingdom!" But no one's going to crown me anytime soon. So, you know, really, what is the, what is the order that you perceive at least as as a principle that we can start pushing on here to find some? It is what the New Testament exhibits, rather than, and I think this is significant, the New Testament does not obsess over what the order needs to be. So it is not spelled out in the same way that an order for the family is spelled out. That, that's really significant. And yes. you can neglect nice. that if you want to and obsess over what the order inside the church is supposed to be. But you need to pay attention to what the Bible cares more about explicitly than other things. What you see exhibited is a combination of activity and consultation. The activity involves a ministry set aside for the purpose. That's why Paul describes the minister making his living by the gospel as a right, an exousia, not as something he happens to have. So there is a ministry set apart for the service of the gospel in which the 70 blend in with the 12 and Philip is just preaching the gospel and baptizing and so what that ministry is, is fairly simple and clear. It's it's proclamation and administration of the sacraments. It's, it's really not that complex. That ministry set aside is primarily governing the church. 
um, you can see that in Acts 15, which is not seemingly a, a voters meeting in the sense that we mean that. But the idea that the church would somehow be governed without the consultation of the entire church is also alien, both to the New Testament, where the congregation is consulted and their wisdom is appealed to in all the letters. You know, you can discern these things for yourselves. You can understand what the scripture says. But it's also alien to church history. And the reason that Sasa is able to make that observation is that I think a lot of people study the church fathers as if they're ahistorical. And, and he did not, and he profited from that, because something you can see is that a bishop will be appointed, for example, in this or that city under the, the cognizance of whatever, you know, eventually the, the emperor in Constantinople. But there's still a formality in some cases, and in other cases, a, a reality of the congregation accepting the man who has been nominated for that position. And and we, you know, you can fret all day over the fact that we have presidents in the Missouri Synod instead of bishops, largely, but that's basically what we're doing. Uh, presidio, I think, is pretty closely related to the word oversight, if you go back in the etymology far enough. You don't, you just, you just play with the terms. Yeah, so... So I, what I really love there, um, you said a lot of good things, but what I, what I really love was, <laughs> can you imagine your your parish constitution, you know, I guess after the confession of faith, where we state that, you know, this inalterable article includes the canonical books of the Old New Testament and that we're going to stand on the Augsburg Confession and teach the people the small catechism. Yeah. Like, like right after that, like instead of this, that, and the other membership voters, blah, blah, blah. How about, how about like, this place exists to promote the family unit, right? Like, yeah, I want to get better language in my actual constitution, but the next article is the family. I, I think because go ahead. What goes the voters without the family, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I want you to jump in, but like uh, Acts fifteen too, right? We 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 use that in Acts six as our like that's Walther's voters assembly, and I, I like Walther a lot. I like Walther a lot, but I'm pretty sure there was no female suffrage for sure in those texts. So that's right. an issue right there. Yeah. And and the idea that this is suffrage. Is you know what you say is tell it to the church, have it in consultation. Right? The leadership is working with an awareness of the body, but it's hardly like, hey, let's argue and vote afterwards. Yeah, um, that, that's a different thing. Okay, so I mean, if if Missouri Synod polity apes American polity, and, and we are close, we are we're at time, so yeah, it's okay. It's gonna kind of gonna be my last thing at least. If Missouri Synod polity apes American polity, you have to remember American polity is built to handle such as people know it because you don't know your state constitution, or if you do. You know, you're a very I'm unusual sorry person. For you? <laughs> right. You're talking about the US Constitution, right? So it's like, uh, oh, well, they were influenced by America. The US Constitution is built to handle originally 13, soon with Vermont and Kentucky, 15 very different places that are that are at that time very far from each other. So suspicion is natural, misunderstanding is natural. Some of them have different state churches. Virginia is supposed to be Anglican, even in colonial times, dubiously, but it's actually mostly Methodist and Baptist. Those places are far apart from each other. That's the point. Okay. So balance of power, checks and balances, suspicion of executive, that's all built for people who don't know each other and they're not supposed to, and they don't need to. It's not built for a local assembly where the pastor lives next to the church and you know everything his kids do. You're not supposed to be that suspicious and angry all the time. <laughs> okay. A New England town meeting functioned differently than the federal constitution because you're supposed to behave with people that you see all the time differently 
than with people you never see. So the idea that somehow it was okay or like it wasn't okay because they aped it is a misunderstanding of the scale of respectively the federal constitution and a local congregation. So what I just outlined from the New Testament is based on the fact that suspicion and mutual recrimination and all of that is, is not natural. It doesn't have to happen. And the idea that we're set up to handle it because everybody's a sinner is contrary to the New Testament. It has something to do with Stefan, I think, to be fair. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> most of the people that approve that first constitution aren't from the state of Missouri, let alone no. are they Saxons. No. So if they're going to go along with it, that's their problem too, because the system as 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 conceived and and very often, especially in the past as practiced, meant that the pastor was per se suspect. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's silly. The pastor is per se subject to the word of God. So the laymen need to be active in holding him to the word of God. They don't need to be active in being suspicious of him. Those are, t- those are two different things. Suspicion is not natural among brothers. And in a time of an uncertain future, we should start acting naturally. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. 
Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Thank you.